Thank you, Max, and the rest of the worship team. And good morning, everyone. I said last Sunday, it is good to be together because together is the Bible's word. And every time God's people come together, we know that there will be spiritual renewal and there will be boldness to, t- to, pr- to take his gospel to the world. Thank you once again for joining us, and we are really encouraged by your um, commitment to church public gatherings. This coming Sunday is a very special Sunday in the life of the church. Uh, the Debrains are back with us, and Arno will be preaching, so that's absolutely good news. I know many of you have told me you've had enough of hearing my voice, and so we're very delighted that there will be a break from that. Um, anyways, jokes aside, the Debrains are with us, and we're looking forward to them coming back. So come with a big heart to show your love to the Debrains. And of course, we've got another community that is joining us through the digital world. Uh, I've been saying throughout uh, my updates that we're gathering at the maximum of 50, and that poses a challenge for us because we're, not, we're more than 50 in our church. And so those who can't join us, they're joining us through that little world, that camera. I'm so glad that I don't have to be standing in a little room behind the camera and preaching to you. And even then, you continue to give us good up feedback. We're back again today on Luke uh, 11. And uh, we're picking up from verses 29 through to verses 36. I'm afraid you can't follow the reading nor my message through PowerPoint. Uh, we, the, the license for our PowerPoint, PowerPoint has expired. Therefore, we can't have the PowerPoint today. It was prepared, but unfortunately, it could not take it. So you will have to listen harder um, than you normally do. So let's read together. <clears throat> when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. And that's the key word to the entire text. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for, for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this, be to this generation. The Queen of, of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they, re- for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a bucket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful. Least the light in you be darkness. If then your body, your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And so far we read together from God's word. So this morning we're picking up from where we left last Sunday. I said last Sunday, Luke's aim for writing his gospel is to make us know who Jesus is. And having known who Jesus is, that we'll find certainty in him. Since last Sunday we saw that Luke wants us to know that Jesus is more powerful than we imagine. And today, Luke wants us to know that Jesus is more demanding than we realize. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. So, last Sunday, we saw Jesus casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon has left, the man, the mute man, began to speak and people marveled. It's an amazing little detail that Luke adds to, this, to his narrative. <laughs> he says, when the demon left, the man began to speak and people marveled. It's a little detail yet significant. Because what it does, it introduces us to the person who cast the demon. That here was this man whose entire personality was locked in a prison. And this prison seemed to be a life sentence. And within a moment of an encounter with Jesus of Nazareth, this demon is cast away and the man began to speak, began to do what he was created for, began to show forth the Im what it means to be made in the image of God. Because to be made in the image of God means to emulate God, to be like God. Here was a man made in the image of a speaking God, and he was unable to emulate that. And so Luke adds that little detail. When the demon left, the man began to speak, and the people marveled. So we noticed last week that there were two responses to Jesus, towards Jesus, as a result of this miraculous demonstration of power. The first response that we saw and we took time focusing on last Sunday was a, reaction, a deliberate reaction. The deliberate rejection of God. Jesus is now 
faced with a devastating human hostility for healing this man, for helping this man gain his life back, he is now confronted with devastating human hostility. They said to him, Jesus did this by the devil himself. Imagine. That's all they're concerned about. In verses 15 of chapter 11, where we were last week, he cast out demons by, Bel by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. So what we saw last week was an outright, outright blasphemy and rejection of Jesus' power and his identity. It's an outright one. It's a blasphemy and it's a rejection of his power and of who he is. And we said last Sunday, the reason why they reject him is because they know if they, they say, yes, the person who has cast out this demon is more than a man, they will be saying he is divine, therefore he has authority over their lives. And they're not willing to let go and submit their authority. There was, however, a second reaction which is going to preoccupy our thinking this morning. And that one is there in verse 16 of the previous study. Others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And this reaction, this second reaction, is described as cynical and deliberate neutrality. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of pretense. It sounds genuine. It sounds legitimate. Show us signs from heaven. Then we will believe. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. As I have been thinking about it this week, I couldn't help but notice that there is a ring of familiarity to this demand that is made by the crowds to Jesus. It, it's familiar to our time. It's familiar to many conversations I've heard with friends and with people in general. I will not believe in God unless he reveals himself in a certain way. Or how many times have you heard someone say, God must show himself, or God must give me a clear sign. We all do that. I yearn for a clear sign. I know many times when I have had to make big decisions and longing to get a clear sign that this one is from you, God. So, this is an, a, a very familiar demand. I do, however, want to say, if you find yourself in that space where you are saying, Lord, show me a clear sign, I'm afraid to tell you that when it comes to spiritual issues, things are not very clear like that. There is a story, I may not tell the story properly as, as, as the person who told did, but it's a story of the two medical professionals. They are on their day off and they're driving and that's 
just enjoying themselves. And like it happens to me, I'm not sure to you, as when they look on their rear mirror, they saw a traffic officer just very close to them. And they realized that they were traveling at the speed um, wrong for the place they were on. And one of them pulled out their, is it testoscope, that thing they use? And waved it at the police, hoping to assure the police that there is an emergency. And the police smiled back and also looked down and he pulled the handcuffs and waved them. And so they pulled off because they have received a clear sign. The sign was clear. There were no questions about it that we are in trouble. I'm afraid, however, that when it comes to spiritual things, things are not as clear as that all the time. It's been said again and again that when it comes to the doctrine of God's guidance or the doctrine of God's guidance is the most difficult one. Even very clear theologians have find that one difficult. I don't have time to go there. I just went there because I wanted to touch on the fact that this demand made by these crowds to Jesus has a familiar ring to us, both to us in the church and outside the church. Those who are searching and looking into Christianity, often they say, I will not believe until God shows himself to me in this way. And those of us who are inside find themselves like those who are outside, saying, only if God can show himself clearer, I would be able to say, yes, I'm taking this. Now, we saw how Jesus responded to the first reaction last Sunday, which they said, which says to them, he cast out demon by Beelzebul. He said to them, your reaction is illogical and foolish. Your reaction defies common sense. We know that word very well in South Africa, defying. It defies common sense. Think about it. That's what Jesus is telling them. How can devil turn against devil? It doesn't make sense. And that's how he closed the case with them. But here in this passage where he is now dealing with those who are demanding, he says he describes their demand as evil. He describes them as evil in their demand they are making to him. Because they are not seeking logical or scientific proof that what happened to this man was, a super, was of supernatural power. Everyone who was there knows that. That's why Luke adds that detail and say, people marveled. In fact, those who were outright in rejection, they said, yes, it is supernatural power, but it's not of God. So everyone who was there does not deny the truth that 
This is the act of supernatural power. So this second crowd or this second reaction of the crowd is not necessarily seeking logical or scientific proof. But instead, they are deliberate and willfully ignoring the evidence. Deliberately and willfully ignoring the evidence that is in front of them. And Jesus says, that is the mark of evil. So today's passage is a warning drawn from the reactions of the people who have heard the amazing teaching of Jesus and have heard and have seen his acts of power. It is a warning. It is a searching passage. It makes me and it makes us to look deep within us. Fortunately for us, in our reading this morning, we ended on verses 36. But if you take time and read from verses 36 through to verses 54, it's quite a, le- a, strength, a, st- a stretch passage, you will see the woes that comes out there. Jesus, in a way, rebuking and condemning those who are insiders of, religious, of, his, of religion of, of the day that they assume that they are inside and yet they are outside. So what we have before us is a warning, but also it's a searching passage. And when you and I look deep within ourselves, you know what we see? We realize that human beings rarely admit being wrong. Of course, we are happy to show off the things that we do right so that we can improve our our standing and our image in the society. But it is seldom that we admit being wrong because admitting wrong often is considered weak and, of course, shameful. And one Christian author in actually dealing with this said, the most profoundly counterculture activity in our congregational life is the prayer of confession. Is that prayer that we do at the beginning of the service in their context. It is a prayer in which we ask God to have mercy on us and restore us the joy of his salvation because we are sorry and repenting of the sin. When last did you do that prayer? When last did you come to the Lord in your private space in prayer of confession? Admitting that God is right and you are wrong. Could you imagine any meeting, any board meeting, any political meeting, annual meeting, beginning with a prayer of confession. Where before God we are admitting that we are wrong and we are in need of his mercy. That's what this passage does to us. It makes us look deep within ourselves. 
It reminds us that. The great New Testament gospel is available to those who are honest enough to ask God for a clean heart and a new spirit within them. Is that us? Is that you? Is that me who comes to God and asking God for a clean heart and the renewed spirit within me? That's one of the things I find myself these days thinking long and hard about. The need for spiritual renewal in the church. And this has nothing to do with sin for that matter. It's got everything to do in the context I'm speaking about of the fact that as we've been scattered away from being together, somehow the joy and the passion for God has been stolen away from us. We find ourselves in the space uh, which I've described as a spiritual fatigue. We find ourselves worn out, despair. Our prayer life is a drag. Apuro was asking me the other day, you should be worried if that's a conversation, conversation happening in the homes of one of your pastors. Thankfully, he's not your senior pastor. She was asking me, have we stopped believing, believing in prayer in this house? That's, that's my wife asking me. That means that's how prayer is barren in our home. It's not that bad. But somehow we find ourselves in the space where thinking about our spiritual life, putting value in our spiritual life through taking time in prayer with God has been dried out in us. But part of confession, you know what it does? It gives you that renewal. It's like, it's like reconciling with your friend. It energizes you. You want to call him or her again because you know, this gap that had happened between you has stolen the joy that you bring to one another. That's what confession does. It makes you want to go back to God again because you've cleared the issues. So when last did you come to God on your knees confessing how you repent and you want him to restore the joy of salvation? So, what we see here before us is this unavoidable challenge that as we begin to take Jesus serious, we realize that he demands more than we realize, than we imagine. As we begin to take him serious, the realization dawns on us that he demands more than we imagine. As this chapter unfolds, that's what we see. Jesus demands a radical attitude change. You see, because being a Christian is to daily admitting that I am wrong and God is right. The truth is, we find that difficult. We find it difficult because it's counterculture. But the gospel joy of it is that you do that before your father who knows you anyway. We were talking with our children um, 
last week, we, we, we discovered that there was a beautiful letter that was written by my daughter on behalf of my son to one of the children at school. And so the letter was not received by the person it was meant to go to. So it came back to my son, and my son was devastated that the letter didn't go to the person it was meant to. But what we said was, next time you want to write a kind of letter like this to a friend at school, will you please let us see it as well? Because we're now waking up to our sleep that something very significant has happened behind us. That's us. We find it difficult to admit that I am wrong and God is right. But the gospel part of that is that we do this before God, not before the people. So in verses 29, we are told that the crowds were multiplying. Jesus is at the peak of his popularity. But there is something again that challenged me here. Did you notice how uncompromising he is in his diagnosis of this generation. Did you notice? He says, this generation, he's talking to them. He's not writing somewhere in his study. He is standing in front of this crowd. He said, you guys are evil. You guys are evil. And then he qualifies why he says that. He, 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 he tells them that, you see, because the, the evidence is piling in front of you, but you deliberately choose to ignore the evidence, to walk away from the evidence, and you demand me to show you the signs. He says, there are two witnesses that I'm going to raise. He goes back to the Old Testament. These witnesses will stand against you at the judgment day. They had far less than you guys have. They're coming from a far less background than your background. But when the evidence was presented to them, they repented and believed. You guys have more than they have. But you keep making fun of it. He is uncompromising. Did you notice two things that he says? He says, when they heard, they believed and put their faith in God. That's what faith is. You believe and you show the change. If believing doesn't translate itself into action and in transformation, then it doesn't work and show. The two examples from the Old Testament. One is the people of Nineveh. The other one is the queen of Sheba of queen, or queen of the south. The people of the Nineveh, they are there in verses 31, at the end of verses 31. They are the people whom Jonah, that reluctant prophet, you remember him? The one who, who, who was sent to go to Nineveh and went to another direction. And he found himself for three days at the belly of the fish. And his appearance is a miracle to the people of Nineveh. And as he preached to them, telling them the story of how God delivered, delivered him at the belly of the fish, the people believed and they put their faith in Jonah's God. They were 
pagans. They were Gentiles. They were not Jews, but they believed to the God of the Jews. From a reluctant preacher. Even the king said, let's invite fasting. Let's ask even the animals to fast and turn back to God of Jonah. These are the people who had very little than you have. That's what Jesus says. And they have very little background. What about the queen of Sheba in verses 32? The queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's wisdom. And when she heard about this Solomon's wisdom, she went and explored it. And when she saw Solomon, she said, the, the things I've heard about you, they're not even coming nearer to what I see. And she too, she repented and believed to the God of Solomon. So Jesus says these two people, these two witnesses will stand against you. Did you notice the word that says you guys have something greater than what they had? Something greater than Jonah is here. Verses 30. Something greater than Solomon is here. And you guys will choose not to hear me. He says, I am the sign, the same sign Jonah was to the people of Nineveh, and they repented. I am the same sign that the queen of Sheba was to his people, and they repented, and you did not. In other words, on the day of judgment, you will have no excuse to say, sorry, the evidence was not enough. You have more than enough. You see, the signs and the miracles of Jesus all the way to his death on the cross, all the way to his burial and resurrection, these are the ultimate proof of his identity. Therefore, they tell us that his teaching is reliable. Therefore, we must believe it and put our faith in him. They tell us that he is God's promised Messiah, and his words are the truth of God. So, if you don't believe, you will have no opportunity to plea for the mitigating circumstances on the day of judgment. I wonder what would Jesus say about our generation? If he said, you are the evil generation more than 2,000 years ago, I wonder what would he say about our generation today? Trying to answer that will be presumptuous, but the evidence is clear in front of us. You and I have the New Testament, which they did not have. We have Christ dying on the cross and being raised on the third day. And what Jesus is saying to you and I, if we choose to ignore that evidence, we will be condemning ourselves. If we choose or fail to follow that evidence, we've seen it, we believe in it, now we must follow in that evidence. We are condemning ourselves. It is refusal to admit that we are wrong. And it is refusing 
to have a view, the right view of who Jesus is when we fail to believe the evidence and follow on it. Let's conclude. In verses 33 to verses 36, Jesus takes his analysis of this generation further. He now makes a parable about the body and the lamp. He says to them, not only are you ignoring <laughs> the evidence, but you are also excluding the lamp, the light. In your arguments, you are excluding the light, deliberately excluding this light. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see. In other words, the light is only able to work when you are able to see it. So you see it and by it you also can see. That's the only time the lamp, it can work. But if you take that lamp and you put it under a cellar, it is not helping you to see. It doesn't illuminate your eyes to see the light. Your eyes is the lamp. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Even though there may be a light around you, but if that which is meant to receive the light is non-functioning, you're not, you're not going to be able to see the light. However much there is light around you, you will still be in the darkness. However evidence, much evidence is around you, you will still choose not to follow it. Surely those words... Are strong words. Verses 35, therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Lest your eyes show you a distorted light. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, your view of me is distorted, is wrong. Because your eyes are unhealthy and your whole body is in darkness. Then verses 35 gives us something positive. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will, whole, it will, it will be whole bright as well as a lamp with its rays. But indeed, the word for us is verses 35, where he says, be careful, lest the light in your body be darkness. So this is a warning to us. It is a warning not to distort Jesus, our view of Jesus, not to have a distorted view of Jesus. Because however much light we have around us, we may still be in the dark. This generation is the evil generation because they keep seeking the sign from heaven. But they will have no sign 
except the sign of Jonah. You have everything in you. That's what Jesus is saying. And what better way to respond to this word than coming to the table of the Lord? Because there we see Jesus broken, his body broken for us, and his blood poured out for us. You can, you can come, please. So we get an opportunity to do exactly what we said at the beginning, to ask God to give us a clean heart and a renewed spirit. To thank him, of course, for his body, but also to ask him to give us a renewed spirit.